is alive. He is risen. And that's exciting news, isn't it? You guys can grab your Bibles and open up to Luke chapter 23. We've been studying the Gospel of Luke now over the course of about seven years. Every summer we get back into the Gospel of Luke and we're about to wrap up our sermon series through Luke. And this morning we land appropriately on that first Easter morning. And we're going to read the text together. Starting Luke 23, verse 50, we're going to go through 24, verse 12. Here's what it says. There was a good and righteous man named Joseph, a member of the Sanhedrin who had not agreed with their plan and action. He was from Arimathea, a Judean town, and was looking forward to the kingdom of God. He approached Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Taking it down, he wrapped it in fine linen and placed it in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever been placed. It was the preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed along and observed the tomb and how his body was placed. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes. And they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. On the first day of the week, Very early in the morning, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. They went in, but did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men stood by them in dazzling clothes, so the women were terrified and bowed down to the ground. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? asked the men. He is not here. But he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, It is necessary that the Son of Man be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and rise on the third day. And they remembered his words. Returning from the tomb, they reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women were with them, telling the apostles these things. But these words seemed like nonsense to them, and they did not believe the women. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. When he stooped to look in, he saw only the linen clothes. So he went away amazed at what had happened. Heavenly Father, we just come before you this morning just in awe of this reality that you would send your Son into the world And God, even if you just came as a human being and spoke to us, healed us, guided us, and served as an example for us, that in and of itself would be incredible mercy and grace, but you did so much more. You went to the cross on our behalf, and you suffered, and you bled, and you died. And then, Lord, you rose. God, we thank you that the Lord Jesus is alive today. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you sit on a throne in all of your resurrected glory right now. And your spirit is with us. You're present with us this morning, Lord. We thank you for that. And I pray, God, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would stir our affections freshly for Jesus Christ. We pray in his precious name. Amen. There's a picture that I came across last year around this time, and I have not been able to get it out of my head as it relates to the resurrection. So here's the picture. What this is, is a bunch of Jenga blocks stacked on top of one another. You guys know the game Jenga? 
So you have these little wooden rectangular pieces and you put them in a mold and then you pull the mold off and it's like a, a tower. And then one by one, you take turns pulling out Jenga pieces, trying not to make the tower collapse. And this is kind of the opposite of that. This is a very niche hobby that I discovered where people will stack as many Jenga pieces on top of one singular vertical stacked piece as possible. So you can see in the picture, you start with one piece and it's stacked vertically, and then you see how many other pieces you can get on top of it. I've watched videos of this. This is not fake. This is not Photoshopped. The world record for this right now is over 1,500 pieces stacked on top of one singular piece. And I don't know about you, but I get nervous just looking at that picture. <laughs> because it looks like if you just even breathe on it, the whole thing is going to collapse because it's balanced on this one singular piece. And that picture is a perfect illustration of what the resurrection of Jesus represents in Christianity. In 1 Corinthians 15, the apostle Paul says that if Christ has not been raised... Your faith is worthless. All of Christianity is a giant scam if Jesus didn't rise from death. Which means that every word written in the New Testament, every person who has been converted to faith in Christ, every missionary that's been sent, every church planted, every belief, thought, deed, or motive that has flowed from faith in Christ for the last 2,000 years, all of it is like those Jenga pieces stacked on top of that one singular piece. All of those acts of faith, all of those lives of faith, millions upon millions of them for the last 2,000 years, all rest in balance on one singular fact, which is the bodily resurrection of Jesus. It is that important. If you lose the resurrection, you lose all of Christianity. Why is that the case? Well, without the resurrection, Jesus could not be the sinless son of God. In fact, Jesus would have been a liar. At best, he would have been a crazy person because he said over and over, I'm going to be crucified and then I'm going to rise from death. If he's a liar, he's certainly not sinless. If he's a crazy person, he's certainly not the son of God, which means there is no forgiveness of sins, at least not through Jesus. It means the gospel message is a lie and has no power at all. In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says the gospel is the power of salvation. That's a complete joke without the resurrection. It means there's no eternal life and death is the end. And so when it comes to our passage this Easter morning, the stakes could not be higher. Luke had better have his facts straight on this part. Because if this part of the story can be disproven, then the whole thing is empty. All of Christianity is false. And so we're going to look at those facts. We're going to examine whether or not it's reasonable for someone to believe that Jesus actually rose from death. But before we do that, I want to examine another question first. My guess is a lot of you guys have been to many Easter services over the years. And oftentimes, at least in my experience, when we examine the resurrection, when we celebrate the resurrection, one of the things that we celebrate is the historical nature of it, is the reliability of it. And that can put us in a posture where we stand back and we kind of fold our arms and say, prove it to me. Show me the evidence. Show me the historical data. And that actually is a good thing to do. Christianity is a rational, reasonable faith. 
And so we can, and we should look at it from that perspective. It's appropriate, it's helpful, but before we do that, I want you to consider another question, a different type of question. And the question is this, if Jesus is alive today, what does that mean for you? What significance would it have in your life if these things are true? If Jesus actually rose from death and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father, and he's coming back to judge the living and the dead, if that is true, what does it mean for you? Is there anything in your life that would have to change if this was true? Is there anything in in the way you think about the world the way you set your priorities, attitudes that you have, habits that you have, habits that you don't have, that would need to change if Jesus is actually alive? Would it change your perspective on certain relationships? Would it change what you value? Would it change what you love? Would it change the way you spend your time or your money if Jesus is actually alive today? That's where I want to start. What does it mean for you? So we're going to look at two main points as we study the passage. First, the significance of the resurrection, what it means for you. And then we're going to look at the evidence for the resurrection. First, the significance. If Jesus rose from death, it has at least three very serious implications for every person. Every one of you in this room and every person who's ever lived. Number one, it proves that Jesus is God and the Savior of the world. This is exactly how the apostles reasoned in the book of Acts, chapter 17. It says, He has set a day, talking about God the Father, when He is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man He has appointed. That's Jesus. So they're saying God the Father has appointed His eternal Son, Jesus, to judge the world at the end of the age. And He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising Him from the dead. Jesus is the only person who's ever lived who is resurrected. Now, to be fair, there are other people who are resurrected from the dead. Just earlier in the story, before Jesus is crucified, he raises Lazarus, his friend, from the dead. But Lazarus died again. Lazarus is dead today. Jesus is the only person in human history who was risen from the dead and is still alive. He ascended back into heaven where he sits on a throne in resurrected glory. And this proves that Jesus is God. It proves that he's God because, number one, he said this is what's going to happen. Over and over, repeatedly, emphatically, Jesus claimed that he was God, he was the Messiah, and he would be killed, and he would rise after three days. It's not just Jesus' predictions that are validated, though, by the resurrection. The Old Testament, both the law, the Pentateuch, and the prophets point to Jesus' death and resurrection. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3. He says, For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Not just that He died, but that He died the way the Scriptures said He was going to, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And so when you go back and you look at the Old Testament, it is congruent with the reality, the facts on the ground of the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. This is what the whole book of Hebrews is about. The book of Hebrews ties the Old Testament sacrificial system in the book of Leviticus. You know how they would take lambs and they would take animals and they would slaughter them. They would kill them, innocent lambs, and they would pour their blood on the altar 
to make atonement for the sins of the people. And in Isaiah 53, it said that the Messiah would be the Lamb of God. In John chapter 1, when Jesus shows up on the scene for the first time, his cousin, John the Baptist, remember what he says? He says, behold, the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. All of the Old Testament points to the death of the Messiah. Psalm 16, Psalm 22, Daniel 12, Isaiah 53, Jonah, and Hosea, they all point to his resurrection that the grave could not hold him, that he would rise after three days. And so the resurrection of Jesus serves as very strong evidence that Jesus was and is the Messiah, the Son of God, God incarnate, which is a big deal. Leads to implication number two for your life. It means if Jesus rose, that the Lord Jesus has a claim on you. Have you ever thought about this? He has a claim on your life. This is where things get really personal. If Jesus rose from death, if Jesus really is the Son of God, that means He gets to tell you what to do. Doesn't it? It means He decides what's right and wrong. Not you, not me, not the culture. He decides what is good and bad. This is why Jesus could say things like this. In Mark chapter 8, this is a astounding teaching. It says, calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone wants to follow after me. Now remember, who's he talking to? The crowd. This is not just the 12. This is just throngs of people who have come out to hear from Jesus. They want to be healed by him. And he says, listen up, all of you. If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." Last couple of weeks, we've been studying in Luke's gospel, the crucifixion of Jesus. And so we've read about the betrayal of Jesus and the false accusations of Jesus, that he was unjustly accused, he was brutally beaten, he was mocked, he was spit on, he was whipped, beaten to within an inch of his life. And then before they crucified him, they said, take your cross and carry it up the hill to Golgotha. And here Jesus is, way before the crucifixion, and he's teaching to the crowds, and he says, if you want to follow me at all, you have to follow me there. This would have been a shocking statement. You have to follow me up the hill with your cross, bleeding, bloody, humiliated, probably naked. If you want to follow me, you have to carry your cross. This would have been so offensive. This would have been such a weird thing to say. And he doesn't mean literally that all Christians are going to have to be crucified. He's saying you have to be willing to give up your life. You have to be willing to suffer deeply and lose your life. I used to think that type of devotion to Christianity was only for professionals. I grew up going to church, and I thought, this is like varsity-level Christianity here. This is for pastors, missionaries, maybe seminary professors, and I said, you know what? I'm happy to play JV. I'm happy to just ride the bench and just, I just want to be on the team, go to heaven when I die. 
I don't need to be all wild and crazy like Jesus. But look at what he says. He's very clear. Jesus is saying, this is not varsity level Christianity. This is entry level. This is the starting, this is the prerequisite. You want to be on the team? If anyone wants to follow after me, you give up everything. You set your face towards the cross like Jesus did. You you determine in your heart a willingness to suffer if necessary in following Christ. Now, why would Jesus say that? Why would that be the standard for following him? It's because he's God. (laughs) That's why. It's because he is worthy of your worship. If Jesus is God, then that means he created you. That means he sovereignly controls the the breath that you draw in this moment. It means that he is worthy of nothing less than the very fiber of your being, every part of your heart and soul. And just giving him one day a week, just giving him some of your life when you feel like it, when it's convenient, would make no sense at all if he's God. You either worship him as God or you do what the Jews did and reject him as a false messiah. If Jesus rose, then he is God. He has full claim on your life. This is why Jesus said in John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commands. If you love me, you will keep my commands. When Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead with the holy angels, which is what he says he's going to do, and you stand before him, here's a question you can ask yourself. Have you kept Jesus' commands? My guess is most of you here this morning, you would say, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. You would probably even go as far as to say, I love Jesus. Jesus says, you love me. Have you kept my commands? Have you kept Jesus' commands? When you stand before Jesus, the Bible's so clear. Jesus was clear. The other authors of the New Testament are clear. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is going to judge. Each one of us is going to stand before him. And he's going to make an evaluation of our lives. Were you good or bad? Did you do right or did you do wrong? And on that day, how are you going to fare? Are you going to be innocent or guilty of breaking God's commands, of breaking his laws? Some of you are thinking, well, I don't don't know. How do I know? It's pretty easy. You just go through them. (laughs) God has made this fairly simple for us. Think about the Ten Commandments. Think about the other commands in the Scripture. So have you ever told a lie before? you ever stolen something? Have you ever lusted after another person in your heart? Have you ever been jealous or envious? Have you ever been bitter towards someone? Have you ever gossiped about somebody? Have you ever been selfish or greedy or lazy or proud? And if you're legitimately thinking, you know what? I think I'm good. I've never done any of those things. Then you know what Jesus would say? You are among the worst (laughs) because you're self-righteous and you're self-deceived. God does not just look at your external behavior and the words that come out of your mouth. It says that he sees every thought and motive and attitude of your heart. There's nobody who's righteous. There's nobody who's sinless. We're all going to be guilty on that day. And in the book of James, chapter 2, verse 10, James tells us it only takes one sin 
He says, if a man keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point, he's guilty of breaking all of it. And so what the Bible says is that if you sin one time, you will face the judgment of God in hell. If you sin one time, and you're thinking, what a ridiculous standard. Nobody's going nobody's to meet that standard. I mean, raise your hand if, you've, if you would say, I've never sinned one time in my life. Now, if you're maybe like an infant or something, <laughs> infants in the room probably don't understand that question. One sin separates you from God. And let me give you an illustration of why this makes perfect sense. Last week, I contracted what can only be described as the bubonic plague. (laughs) It was the Black Death. I I, I don't know what it actually was, but I have not been that sick in years and years and years. It was some kind of stomach virus, and I will spare you the details, but just so you have a sense of how severe it was. So I'm a little bit weird, I will confess. But when my stomach started gurgling, and right when it was starting, and I'm like, I think this might be something special. Like, I knew it was going to be bad. And so I, I stepped on the scale in my bathroom. I was just curious. I just want to see what the damage is. I stepped on the scale, and then about 12 hours later, after 12 hours of deep darkness, <laughs> when I was pretty sure it was, the worst of it was over, I stepped on the scale again. All the same clothes on and everything. And in 12 hours, I lost 10 pounds. And some of you are thinking... Where do I get a hold of that virus? <laughs> but it was bad. I was, I was incredibly sick. And do you know what my sweet wife did? My, my precious wife, she slept in the living room. She quarantined me to our bedroom. She would scold me anytime I would deliriously come out looking for a drink of water or something. And she went around disinfecting every surface in our house that I even came near for like the next 48 hours. And why would she do that? And you're, you're thinking, well, that's what I would do. <laughs> but why? It's because she knows what you know, which is that all it takes is one encounter with the tiniest little amount of virus, and you will be infected. That's all it takes. There's no halfway stomach virus. You don't just get a little bit sick. You either are infected and you're sick, or you have not encountered it. You've not come in contact with the virus, and it only takes one time, and sin works the exact same way. You're either infected with it and sinful, or you are holy and sinless like God. And so maybe you haven't sinned as much as me. I don't know. Maybe you haven't sinned as much as the person sitting next to you, but you are far from sinless. It's not even close, which means that you are guilty before a holy, righteous God. Each one of us is accountable to the Lord Jesus because He is God. And those who've sinned, the Bible says, will be punished in hell. Now this is why Jesus died on the cross. This is what we've been talking about the last two weeks. This is the good news that Jesus died so that you don't have to. Jesus was punished by His Father at Calvary so that you could be forgiven and set free. Jesus is the only person who could raise His hand and say, I've never sinned. He lived a perfect holy, righteous life. And he was able to do that because he was and is God in human form. And so when Jesus died, he did it so that any of you who would trust him, who would turn from sin and look to Jesus on the cross and say, that's my only hope. That's my only chance. What Jesus did for me, you'd be saved from judgment. Your sin will be forgiven. You will be made fit for a relationship with God in eternal life. 
It's the second implication. The third implication of the resurrection. Number three, it means that you can also be resurrected to eternal life. That's amazing. It means that sin and death don't get the final say because Jesus is alive. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 54, when this corruptible is clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Now the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus makes the authority of Jesus sweet. It makes it a joy to surrender our lives to Him. It proves that God is not just your judge, but He wants to be your loving Father. It proves that God is not trying to rob you of something good by demanding your life. He's trying to give you what you were created for. He wants to satisfy your soul in a way that the world never can through a relationship with Him that starts now and lasts forever. And so the truth of the resurrection has gigantic implications. There is no claim in human history that has more bearing on your life. Now the next obvious question, very important question, is it true? Sounds great. All my sins can be forgiven, eternal life, relationship with God, awesome. But is it real? Is it reliable? Is it true? And this is where the Gospel of Luke is so helpful. He gives us evidence for the resurrection. Luke was a historian. He was a physician. He was very detail-oriented. He says in chapter 1, the whole reason he wrote the Gospel of Luke, the book of Acts, is so that we could be certain that these things actually took place. That's his whole goal. And that becomes pretty clear as you, even as you look at his account of the resurrection. He gives us three rock-solid facts. Number one, After his crucifixion, Jesus was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Verse 50, there was a good and righteous man named Joseph, a member of the Sanhedrin, who had not agreed with their plan and action. He was from Arimathea, a Judean town, and was looking forward to the kingdom of God. So first look at Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph was a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin. We talked about this a few weeks ago. The Sanhedrin, it was the highest religious political council in the nation of Israel. 70 members on the council. It would be kind of like the United States Senate. There's really no higher authority in the nation of Israel. 70 members. One of them is this man, Joseph of Arimathea. Now you remember, the Sanhedrin sentenced Jesus to death. They hated Jesus. But it's a pretty big group. And apparently Joseph, he didn't like the plan, he didn't go along with the plan, but he got outvoted. He's a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin. Now this type of detail is the type of detail you would expect in a true story. This rings of historical authenticity. Because if the disciples just made this up after the fact, why would you make one of the guys who was on the council that sentenced Jesus to death a hero? You wouldn't do that. But real life is messy. Real people are complicated. They don't fit into little good guy, bad guy boxes. And so Joseph is a member of the Sanhedrin. He's responsible in part for putting Jesus to death. And yet he's depicted here honoring Jesus immensely. 
Now, also as a member of the Sanhedrin, it means that Joseph almost certainly was wealthy. He would have been a wealthy man, a man of great influence. This is how he's able to have his own tomb cut out of the rock. This is what it says. He approached Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Taking it down, he wrapped it in fine linen and placed it in a tomb cut into the rock. In Matthew, it tells us that it's Joseph's own tomb. It's his tomb. And he had to be wealthy to have a tomb cut out of the rock. This is kind of like if you go to a cemetery today. Most people are just buried where? In the dirt. Just right in the ground. But oftentimes, especially in older cemeteries, there are what are called mausoleums. Have you ever seen these? They're like buildings. And and they're kind of like monuments. And typically, these are for wealthy people. They're for people who had a huge impact in their community, influential people. And it stands out. In a cemetery, you have all of these gravestones, and you can identify where people are at. They didn't even have that back at this time. Most people were, they were buried in maybe a little family cemetery, or they were just buried out in the countryside somewhere, under a tree. That's how we know where they are. But Joseph had his own tomb cut out of rock. Joseph, as a member of the Sanhedrin, also would have been very well known. Uh, he, he would have been a man of great political and religious influence. And so just like you've heard of some of the U.S. senators, probably you've heard of Ted Cruz or, I don't know, I can't think of a bunch of senators off the top of my head. But just, you know state senators, United States senators, Joni Ernst, you know some of them. Joseph would have been like that. People would have known who he was because he was a member of the Sanhedrin. It means that he had power. He had access to people. It also meant that he would have been well-connected. This is why he can go directly to Pilate. It, says, it just says nonchalantly. He went to Pilate. He asked for the body. You and I couldn't just go to Pilate and get an audience with him. He's the highest government official in the nation of Israel, the highest representative of Rome in Apparently, Joseph just had direct access to him. He just went to him, and he asks, what he asks for is not a small thing. This is a big, big deal. Jesus was a hot-button issue. Remember, Pilate had Jesus crucified to prevent a riot. The Jews hated Jesus, and they didn't want Jesus honored at all. They wanted him humiliated. And so almost certainly, Joseph of Arimathea, he had to use some political capital in order to get Pilate to give him the body. Because Pilate doesn't want to upset the Jews. So he gives Joseph the body. Luke also gives us another significant detail, which is Joseph's tomb. He tells us in verse 53, there were no other bodies in the tomb where no one had ever been placed. That's important. Because it means, it ensures that there's no confusion about whether or not Jesus was put there. It's empty at first. There's never been a body in there. Now there's one body. It's Jesus says that Jesus' body was observed by multiple people after he was dead and placed in the tomb. This is very intentional, again, on Luke's part. It says it was the preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed along and observed the tomb. They saw it was empty and how his body was placed. And then they put him in there. They saw how his body was placed. They saw how it was oriented. They saw how it was wrapped in linen. Multiple eyewitnesses. And then we know that the tomb is sealed by a very large stone. Luke says this, but we get more detail in Mark's account. Verse 3 of chapter 16, they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from the entrance to the tomb for us? Looking up, they noticed that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. This is a group of several women. 
five, six, ten women, and they're thinking, we can't move this stone by ourselves. That's how big it is. Also in Matthew's gospel, it tells us that the tomb was guarded by Roman soldiers and sealed with a Roman seal. Matthew 27, verse 62, the next day which followed the preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, sir, we remember that while this deceiver was still alive, he said, after three days, I will rise again. Jesus said this all the time. They were anticipating this. So give orders that the tomb be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come, steal him, and tell people he has been raised from the dead. And the last deception will be worse than the first. Take guards, Pilate told them. Go and make it as secure as you know how. They went and secured the tomb by setting a seal on the stone and placing the guards. Setting a seal on the stone, it means there was, there was a, some kind of I don't know what exactly it was, but there, there was some kind of document. Think, think of like a, like a permit, modern-day permit. There was a, a, an official Roman document on the stone itself that communicated, if you touch this, you will die. <laughs> Government property. Do not touch this. Do not go past this line. So it's sealed. Consequence, you break the seal, you die. And not only that, but it is guarded by Roman soldiers professional killers. Now, why is the Bible so meticulous about the details of Jesus's burial? Well, it's because of the second fact. Fact number two, on the Sunday after his burial, Jesus's tomb was found empty by a group of his women followers. Verse one of chapter 24. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. They went in, but did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. The details of Jesus' burial make it virtually impossible for the empty tomb to be a lie. It's, it, it's virtually impossible. It was in a well-known place. It was owned by a well-known person. There are dozens of eyewitnesses that Jesus' dead body was placed there. It was guarded. It was sealed. And yet, on the third day, stones rolled away. The grave is empty. And that's scandalous. This would have been shocking. And it's especially shocking for the Romans. And if it's not true, the Roman soldiers would have diffused it immediately. They would have said, no way. We didn't fail at our job of guarding the tomb and sealing it. And they would have just rolled the stone away. There he is right there. We've done our job. We've been guarding him the whole time. There's his body. And Christianity never would have gotten off the ground. But that didn't happen. The empty tomb is a historical fact. All you're left with then is how to explain the empty tomb. And this, this is what's remarkable. The disciples themselves, in Luke's account, have no explanation. <laughs> Look at verse 9. Returning from the tomb, the women reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Who was it? Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them were telling the apostles these things. Guys, you're never going to believe this. We went there to, to put spices on the body, which was the ritual, the custom of the day for the deceased. And the stone was gone, the soldiers were gone, the seal was broken, and Jesus isn't there. And the disciples are like these hysterical women, <laughs> just being emotional. They literally don't even believe them that this happened. 
These words seemed like nonsense to them, and they did not believe the women. And this leads to the third fact that Luke gives us. The original disciples, the eleven, believed that Jesus was risen from the dead despite their having every predisposition to the contrary. Again, if you were going to make up this story, you would never put this detail in there because it's embarrassing. They didn't believe that Jesus was risen. It, It makes the disciples look like a bunch of faithless clowns, but this is how it went down. And they had no conception of a rising Messiah. This is why when Jesus told them, hey, I'm going to be killed. We're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to rise. Peter pulls him aside at one point and says, Jesus, you've got to stop saying this stuff. (laughs) This is crazy talk. And then obviously Jesus rebukes Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan. The disciples had no conception of a dying, much less rising Messiah. And after Jesus died, they were devastated. They were confused. They were afraid. They were, they were cowering in hiding. And then almost overnight, they are transformed into dynamic, brilliant, fearless, relentless missionaries who go all over the world planting churches and preaching the gospel, and most of them are killed for it. How do you explain that? How do you explain the empty tomb? Well, here's some possible explanations. You say, well, who had access? Maybe the religious leaders, the the chief priests, they went back to Rome and they said, hey, we changed changed our mind. Actually, take his body out. Well, that's exactly the thing that they're trying to prevent. So that would make no sense at all. The Roman soldiers, they had access to the stone. They could break the seal if they wanted to and take the body. But again, they are trying to smooth over the relationship with the Jews who hate Jesus. So they're not in a position where they're going to do anything to upset the mob and potentially cause a riot. They certainly would have no incentive to do it in secret at all. This shook the whole Roman world, the resurrection of Jesus. Not in a good way for the Romans from their perspective. So you can say, well, maybe the disciples stole the body. This was the explanation that the religious leaders gave. Matthew 28, verse 11, as they were on their way, some of the guards came into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. After the priests had assembled with the elders and agreed on a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money and told them, say this, his disciples came during the night and stole him while we were sleeping. If this reaches the governor's ears, we'll deal with him and keep you out of trouble. They took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been spread among Jewish people to this day. So this would mean that uneducated fishermen who had two swords between the 11 of them, who all fled as cowards when Jesus was arrested, who all let him be put to death, suddenly they decide it is worth it to go fight a Roman guard to try to get his dead body. Not only that, but they're successful in doing it. (laughs) So either, now the most likely scenario is they would have had to fight these guys. They would have have had to fight trained soldiers with almost no weapons. And then obviously Rome's going to retaliate. You can't just go fight or kill Roman soldiers with no retaliation at all. Or maybe you say, okay, well, maybe these guys were super sneaky ninjas. And they really did. They just snuck in there. All the Roman guards had fallen asleep, even though they could be put to death for falling asleep on duty. They all fell asleep. The disciples snuck in there. They rolled the stone away, and they just were super quiet while they did it. And these guys never woke up. 
all those scenarios seem incredibly implausible, which is why most people have never believed any of those explanations. But even if one of those things happened, it still doesn't explain why the disciples would do it. What would motivate them to do this? For the rest of their lives, they were poor, nomadic, persecuted men. They were hated. Many of them, most of them were killed because they wouldn't stop saying Jesus is alive. The only other possible explanation is the one the angels give the women. Verse 5, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Asked the men. He is not here, but he is risen. The reason why the disciples were so radically transformed They went from cowering, hiding, not even believing that it could be possible that he's alive. The reason they were transformed is because they saw him. They spoke with him. They ate meals with him. And not just one time, for several weeks, for 40 days, Jesus was on the earth preaching, teaching, hanging out with his friends, It says in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that at one point he spoke to a crowd of 500 people. There's hundreds of eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus, not just the empty tomb, but that he was and is alive. And they were never the same after that. And here's a question I want you to think about. Have you experienced Jesus like that? Have you had an encounter with the Lord Jesus that has changed you like that? When you read the New Testament, the disciples were a little bit crazy. They lived with reckless abandon. The the thing that was most important to them over anything else was serving Jesus, representing Jesus, telling others about Jesus, establishing Jesus' church, accomplishing Jesus' mission and they were ready to die they rejoiced at the opportunity to suffer alongside christ because they were so convinced he's alive are you that convinced have you encountered this risen christ if you're here this morning and you're a christian is this where you're at today I want to just close with this question that we opened with. If Jesus is alive today, what does it mean for you? What does it mean for some of you? For some of you, it means you need to believe in Him. It means you need to become a Christian. You need to turn from the emptiness of the world that is never going to satisfy you. There's no amount of money. There's no promotion. There's no career path. There is no relationship. There is no hobby. There is no accumulation of possessions that's ever going to scratch that itch. You were made to worship Him. You're made to know Him. And you can because of what Christ has done for you. But you need to believe. You need to trust Him. You need to put your faith in what Jesus did for you. And if you're here this morning and you are a Christian, this question is just as important, just as relevant. If Jesus is alive, how should you live? How should you worship him? What space should he occupy in your affections? So many of us, even as Christians, we we are more excited about our kids' extracurricular activities than we are about worshiping God. And we are more entangled in thinking about our job and our career 
and projects at home, vacations we're planning, than we are thinking about and worshiping and meditating on the truths of the gospel. And it shouldn't be that way. You need to turn from that. You need to meditate on these truths. You need to celebrate every day, not just on Easter. Jesus is alive, and he's with you, and he loves you, and he has work for you to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just once again, we want to praise you. We want to thank you. God, as the band comes back up and we sing this last song, Lord, I just pray that we would sense in a fresh way the hope that we have because of the resurrection. God, this life is so short. It's going to be over. Two blinks of an eye. And then we are going to be with you forever. Help us to live like that's true. God, help us to not get so entangled in the details of today, but think about the next life. Think about our relationships. Think about our neighbors. Think about everything that we do. Think about our our immediate family in terms of eternity, in terms of resurrection. God, I pray you'd use us to glorify you and point others to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to continue to worship the Lord this Easter morning through communion. Communion uh, is a time for Christians to remember the death and resurrection of Jesus, and the cracker represents his body that was broken, the juice, it represents his blood that was shed. And Communion is about remembering the gospel and looking forward to the second coming of Christ. But the scriptures are very clear that communion is something that is for Christians only. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian or if you're not sure if you're a Christian, then I would, I would urge you, don't take the elements, but think about receiving the substance, which is the Messiah which is the salvation that is offered to you in Christ. If you're not quite sure how to do that, if you have more questions, please grab me after the service. I'd love to talk to you about that. The rest of you, take a minute at your seat, pray, remember the gospel, and then the band will come back up and we'll close with one more song. 